Hi, I'm Mary Lyons, the Wealth Woman. I'm Eric Alexander with Benchmark Income Group. Welcome to the Big Wealth Podcast. So we have a special treat for you today. Uh, and I say special treat because I get to be super nerdy today. And that is my love language. It just makes me happy. But Eric, how is being super nerdy today any different than any other day? <laughs> you act like it's an odd thing. So one of the thing one of the things I love to hate, and it makes me want to throw a shoe at my uh, at my computer every time I see it, is this one size fits all. All you got to do is X, and you're going to be a bajillionaire or a quadrillionaire, or whatever the, whatever the X is, right? <laughs> and I just I love the very 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 simplistic things in life like that because none of it is actually true. Like there's right. no one area of my life I'm like, you know, all I need to do is wake up every morning and I'm going to be an amazing human. And yet when we get <laughs> advice on the internet, that's how it usually comes out. Right. So I, I saw a uh, post on Instagram, I think it was yesterday afternoon. And so I'll read you the post, but it made me want to throw a, a, you know, a phone, a shoe at my phone or whatever. So this, uh, this guy says, all right, here's the story. Here's the scenario. Married couple makes $185,000 a year. So good for them. They're like adulting at life in a highway. They they each max out a Roth 401k and they get a five or five percent company match. At 59 and a half, they'll have $8.3 million invested, paying them $332,000 a year based on the 4% rule. And then the tagline at the bottom is millionaires in the making. And the whole time I'm like, Oh, there's so much wrong with this. There's just so much wrong with this. So I thought there's, it'd be fun to break it out today. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. And I I think um, where I'm, I'm actually trying to like frantically look this up as we're talking and for whatever reason, I can't find the link right now. Um, but let's start with 185,000 of income. Because right there, if as a household, you were making that, I think you're in what, the top 5% of all earners in the country? Yeah. So, right. okay. <laughs> you should be able, first of all, you should, over your lifetime, be able to become a millionaire if you were in the top 5% of all earners, Captain Obvious. Right. Yeah. And so I'm I'm reading through this, this, uh, this Instagram post, because it's just a picture, right? And the first question that I had and everyone else had below this was, whoa, whoa, wait, when did these people start? Because you didn't say, are they making 185 at 50? Are there? They were 58, and they started saving for a year and a half. <laughs> That's right. So the to his credit, the guy came back and says, "Oh well, these these kids are starting out at 30 years old, making 185k total, uh, and so essentially they they will have been saving for call it 30 years. I'm rounding up by, okay. by six months, right? 29.5. 29.5. So I think the unpacking of this, there's so much going on here that I think is is fun. And I think we can walk through most of it sort of verbally, but I'll put up a an Excel spreadsheet here uh, in just a second. But if they're maxing out a Roth, they're putting in somewhere in the neighborhood of $20,500 a year. Because it's so, a Roth 401k. So Roth you follow the 401k limits the way right. the gentleman made the post. Right. Yeah, so we're we're giving everybody the benefit of the doubt there. So Roth four hundred one k, he's they're putting in twenty thousand five hundred. So they're as a couple, they're setting aside forty one thousand dollars a year. So with my handy dandy calculator, that's saving roughly twenty two percent a year, starting at age thirty through age effectively sixty. How many times do we actually see that? when we initially sit down with the client. <laughs> Especially at 30. My theory is you don't really start adulting till like 35. You're like, I should get I my act. Like, 
I feel like that's young. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really interesting that idea of saving 22% because I think that number is really hard because if you, if, if you think about that, you're making 185 and you're saving roughly $40,000 of that. So that drops your take home down to 145 as a percentage of your income. Man, you just gave up a lot of lifestyle. And, right. and I mean, that's the before argument, taxes. Right. And so you take taxes out and now you're really in a position where you're earning what, just, just over a hundred grand or something, depending right. on if you have state income taxes or what exactly your situation is. And so, I mean, to me that, that is not what we see most people at that income level saving. I love the idea that it's possible to do these things if you're disciplined. Um, but is that a realistic expectation? Right. Well, and the other part of that, I looked it up just before we got on today, the national savings rate right now is 5.1. So this magical couple is making, not only are they in the 5% bracket um, from a wage earners standpoint, but they're also saving 4x the national average. Now we've, we've been preaching for a long time that 20 is probably the right number. Like if right. you had to, if there was a should in your book, the should is around 20%. So they're killing it. Um but the way the posts read, which sort of drives me nuts, is, man, this is how you do it. Like this is this is real life. This should be like falling off a log kind of thing, right? And he doesn't state that. I'm reading into it, but okay. And then how much money are you supposed to have at fifty nine and a half? And you're supposed to have eight point three million dollars by the time you get to nine and by, by the time so, you get so to fifty nine and a half. Real quick, just before we jump to that, so you you mentioned something about a match as well. So right. the couple's putting in $40,000 and then the company is putting in how much? 5%. So 185 times 5%. So this company's putting in another 9250. So as a couple they're saving 50 grand. Some of yeah. most of it's theirs, right? So good for them. 50 grand a year is a lot of money. Yeah. And so you should you should be able to be a millionaire by the time you're 60 at that pace. Hands out like I, I'm just going to throw this out there. I definitely have couples who are making twice as much as that, that maybe are saving that. Maybe. Like getting to 10% savings rates. Right. So I think this is, this is really interesting, right? I mean, you can tell people all day long, this is what you should save. It doesn't mean that they do. Right. So right. I like that it's, I like that it's prescriptive, right? I mean, people like People sure. like simple things. If I do this, I'm going to be a millionaire. Sounds great. Okay, so let's keep going. Let's right. keep breaking this down. So uh, how much uh, money did you say we were going to have? So they're they're saving effectively $50,000 and they're going to have 8.3 million by the time they get there, which, man, they're killing it, right? Sweet. And then the other part that we'll unpack here in a second is based on the 4% rule, and we're, there's a whole podcast on that that we'll do in a second, but... Uh, they're going to have 330 grand by the time they get there. So before we get into the math, I think the human behavior is really important. So yeah. this couple is effectively living on, call it 100 grand, right, every mm -hmm. year. And and they're going to be scrimping and saving to get to be able to save years. 22% for 30 years in a row with no bad years in order to make double what they, or triple what they make right now. The I... I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> you just play one on a podcast. <laughs> I just play one on a podcast, but somebody in that relationship is going to go, all right, time out. <laughs> we're, we're doing what for 30 years to have what? Can we introduce a little bit of lifestyle? Do you mind? Right. Even if you factor in inflation, right? I mean, right. I think most people are 
going to have a hard time attaching to that number just because it is more than what they are currently earning. Right. It's triple. And it's like, well, I've been eating beans and weenies for 30 years and ramen for 30 years. So when I'm 60, I can have a nice life. Like, pause. Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> like, there are these little two-legged tax deductions running around my house that want more every year than I've got to give them, you know? Oh, goodness. This is holiday season too. So all the gift buying and that kind of stuff. Oh Don't gosh. bring that up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me show the spreadsheet because I think there's some fun numbers on this side of it. Okay, if you were just listening, we will make sure we walk through it so that you get the numbers too. But if this is, if you're watching, I think sometimes the visual can help. Yeah. So here's here's the basic numbers. And from what we've talked about before, right? They're saving just a shade over 22%. Um, and so the, through the magic of the internet, we have built a spreadsheet because that is my love language. And we built a spreadsheet with the S&P 500 returns basically since 1993. So 1993 through where the S&P is today, what what it is sort of year to date. It'll give us really just over 29 and a half years. And we're using the most recent 29 and a half years. Right. Because the world started spinning in 1993. So this is all makes sense. That's what Uh, I did. So so we've got basically at the end of this, at the end of this 30 years in a row where we've gotten, you know, 50 grand going in every year. Basically, by the time we get to the end of retirement, 59 and a half, this couple's sitting on seven and a half million dollars. So there did you did you put any fees in there? Yeah, we did a half a percent. So we said, okay. hey, 50 basis points, a half a percent was going to be the load. So we discounted the S P returns by about by about half a point, half okay. a percent. And so seven point five million dollars. So it's just a shade less than eight point three. So I'm not going to ding the guy for that, right? Now, if you look at the average rate of return during that period, if we just do the simple average calculation for that time frame, the average rate of return there is somewhere in the neighborhood of 11.19. Okay. So talk to me. Talk to me. Yeah, net of fees, right? So talk to me about Dalbar's study, because I know we've talked about this a little before. Okay. So the Dalbar study is a study that has been done pretty much every year where they compare uh, the average mutual fund investors returns to what actually happens in the market. And what they have found pretty much every year of the study is that the um, the actual return that mutual fund investors experience is substantially less than what the market actually does. And that happens over any given period of time. And part of that is uh, management fees, but most of that is actually human behavior. That people get out of the market when they shouldn't, and they get into the market when they shouldn't. What happens is, you know, when the market is falling apart, kind of like it has been this year, people start getting out of the market because they're nervous. And then when the market is recovering and going well, they're like, oh, I should put more money in here when the market is kind of at its peak. And so they get in at just the wrong time and then lose money and then they get out. So they miss the recovery. And so when you look at the average returns that are shown in a Dalbar study, they're typically closer to three or 4% for most mutual fund investors over the course of their investing lifetime, simply because they're getting in and out of the market as opposed to just letting it ride. Right. So the assumption that I love here, and and I, to your point, I think it was brilliant earlier, is I love that this post is somewhat prescriptive. You should be saving 20% or more of your income. That, that is a should. If you're not there yet, there's all sorts of cool ways to get there. 
And I like the idea of I'm going to go put some money in the market because there's some opportunities for returns, but it ignores a couple of human behavior components. One, the fact that I'm actually going to be able to go do 20% each and every year for the rest of my working life. Is, no matter what. No matter what is tough, right? No, Nobody had a bad day. Nobody fell off the, the wagon on that moment, right? But the other component is it assumes that the person in this post is this sort of steely-eyed investor, that they have the stomach and the wherewithal to go put the money in and not touch it for 30 years in a row. And so that the Aaron, 30 years they get is this year's. Will you scroll down just a little bit? Because I want to talk about this. So yeah. a little too far, a little too far. Right there. Okay. So if you look at seven years in to this particular investment portfolio, the uh, actual balance on the portfolio seven years in, given the actual S&P returns discounted for a, a half a percent in fees, right. uh, is that you have about 923000 in the account. Right. And if you look at what happens over the next one, two, three years, you would be leaving your money in the market and your portfolio would drop the first year from 923 to 885. Right. And then next year from 885 to 824. And then the next year from 824 to 681. So what the Dalbar study talks about is in markets like that, most people do not want to keep maxing out a 401k. And if right. they can pull their money out of the market or move it into cash, they're probably going to do that at some point during that drop and then not be positioned to take advantage of the recovery. Because if you look at what happens in year 10, right, right. You, you are at 681 at the end of year 10. Well, at the end of year 11, there's a 28% return. And so your portfolio plus your contributions jumps the balance up to 941. And so what the Dalbar study- Better really than what you would have been at seven, right? Right. And so what the Dalbar study really shows is that people don't leave their money invested aggressively through major periods like that. And so even though we can look at the S&P and say, yeah, that's what it's getting. The reality is most people, even index fund investors, get nervous and pull their money out of the indexes at some point, right. And then they miss the largest recoveries frequently. And so you actually see this happen again a couple years later, because if you look at the portfolio balance at the end of year 15, there's one point five, almost $1.6 million. Right. And then 2008 happens and the balance drops down to a million. At that point in time, most people get real gun shy, pull the money out of the market and don't really see a lot of growth for a couple of years before they actually get back into the portfolio. Right. And if you keep projecting this even further forward and you start looking at, keep going, keep, yeah, what, what is happening so far this year? If you look at year 29, the balance at the end of the year is over $9 million, but based on a 17% loss over the course of 2022, the balance right. drops down to $7.5 million. So there's a lot of fluctuation here, especially if you're trying to get to the point where you're getting ready to retire. And so right. just staying in the index fund can be very scary for a lot of people when they're, you know, puking all over themselves for the ride because <laughs> it's been up and down and all over the place. Well, because it assumes to your point, right, that if if we're going to round up for the, that six months from 59 and a half to 30, right, at 59, this couple's got $9 million, and in the course of six months, loses a million and a half of it almost. Yeah, I right? don't know many people who can stomach that. Or would be positioned in an all-equity portfolio at 59, knowing that they're going to retire next year. Right. Right. There, there's all sorts of human behavior. So to discount that and to sort of give this idea... 
we re-ran this and we used the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index married up with the S&P 500. So basically a, what I would call a standard 60-40 portfolio of, of equity and bonds and ran that math all the way through. And as you would expect, the rate of return is not quite as high as if you were doing all equity all the time. So over the exact same time period, instead right. of ending up with 7.5 million, you end up with 5,280,198. Right. And so it's about a 30% drop from what you would have had had you been the steely-eyed, ice in your veins, you can handle all the risk, right? You get a 30% drop in your portfolio balance once you hit that 60 mark, 59 and a half. Right. And so that's a that's a big number. I mean, 30% is no no laughing matter. Now, I would argue that the 5.2, 5.28 is probably a little more realistic because if I'm on a 60-40 ride, the likelihood I stay in when the market's going crazy is probably a little better, right? The, the emotional toil is probably not as heavy, but that the emotions are still in the way, right? Right. And so what I think is really interesting with this too, is that he uses a 4% distribution rate. And this Correct. is something I think we address and address and address and over and over again. There are a lot of people, especially in the fire movement, but in a lot of other um, areas of this industry as well, who keep saying that 4% is a safe distribution rate, despite the fact that some of the you know most highly educated academics have come out in the past couple of years and said the number is radically different. Well, the people that wrote it said so. Go ahead. The people that wrote that article originally said so. Right, that they had miscalculated. Yeah. And so it it is... It is fascinating to me that this is still the number that's thrown out there, but I think sometimes we hold on to things because we like the way the outcome looks or because it is simple and then we don't have to think about things. And, you know, if I say 3% is the safe withdrawal rate, I have to save a ton more money. And so it's it's easy to just attach to that. I think a lot of times when people are using that 4% distribution rate, they're using life expectancy and especially for clients who are affluent and who are more likely to pay for healthcare or who have access to better quality healthcare. And I have a story for that later, right? Which just has to do with if you know doctors and they travel in your social circle, they will get you in with urgency to see other doctors. But if you right. do not know doctors and you do not travel in the social circle of doctors, you just kind of get the appointment you get, right? And so, right. and I and I say that from from personal experience there. And so, you know, you look at some of this stuff and if you have money and you have access and you're in a social circle where you're interacting with doctors on a regular basis, I think planning for a traditional life expectancy is, and I'm going to use these words, I think it's irresponsible yep. because what happens if you live longer than that? Much of the population does. And so if you're planning to just have your money last to life expectancy and you live longer than that, sorry. Yeah. Well, that and there's that fun. Very well for you. Yeah, well, and there's that fun actuarial table or actuarial aphorism that says, the longer you live, the longer you will live. Mm -hmm. Like if, if something hasn't killed you off by 60, the likelihood you're going to last much longer than that goes up dramatically, right? right? You right. didn't get killed in a car accident when you were 16. You didn't get cancer when you were 50. You know, you have a lot of the things that have knocked out other people didn't hit you. Uh, if you're married, if you're affluent, all of these things sort of point towards you need to be thinking about 100 plus from a life expectancy standpoint. Right. Um, and we've seen that too with insurance companies and mortality tables correct. and and the movement of maturity dates on contracts over the past couple of decades from age 100 to age 120 as life yeah. potential. 
And so it, I think you have to err on the side of caution because you literally cannot afford to do otherwise. So Eric, you know, you're, we look at this and at, at the 8.3 million that he talked about in the post, you had 322,000 if you right. did a 4% withdrawal rate. Right, and 332, then yeah. Yeah, 332. And so when you look at an S&P 500 portfolio and then the real number is 7.5 million at a right. 4% withdrawal rate, it drops down from 322 down to 301. But what happens if you drop that rate down to 3% for yeah, the distribution rate? Yeah, if you're all icy veins and you're, you're S&P, but you go from 4% to 3, you go from 300K to 225. So you lose $75,000. So just using an S&P index fund with a half a percent load for trading costs, whatever platform you're using, and then using a 3% distribution rate, you lose almost $100,000 a year of income like this. That's a right. snap, right? Like it just disappears. <laughs> that that. Yeah. yeah. And so if you if you are in a 60-40 blended portfolio because you don't feel that aggressive and you have a 3% withdrawal rate, you're at yeah. 158,000. Right. That That's like, I mean, half of what, you were going to have in that gentleman's example that is yeah, a so 332 yeah you're you're short by about 170 grand or more than that right right and so the, again i want to go back to the psychology of this because you know we had this conversation earlier today mindset beats strategy strategy beats tactics from a standpoint of mindset and i think about a, our friend uh, don blanton and one of it, one of my favorite quotes from Don Blanton is never hurt, never hurry to a weapon. Right. And I'm thinking about this conversation with my wife and I'm like, Hey, look, we're going to live on ramen and noodles and beans and weenies for 30 <laughs> years, but everything is going to be great when we get to the end of this. And we're going to go from 185 grand a year to 158. And oh, by the way, there's this thing called inflation and that 158 isn't going to buy half of what it costs, what it buys now. Right. Come with me. I'm a great catch. You got it, honey. Like nobody's <laughs> hurrying to that weapon. So for those of you who don't know who Don Blanton is, Don Blanton created a software program called Circle of Wealth. Um, and uh, his software program has a lot of really interesting calculators that we use on a pretty regular basis. Tax history, uh, earnings by household across the United States, uh, easy ways to figure out how you should pay for things, that that sort of thing. But, yeah. you know, the, the thing that I think you have to go back to here, and I, I, again, right, it goes to, do you really want to put all your eggs in one basket? Right. And I think because people like simplicity, it's I'm going to buy an index fund. I'm going to just put a bunch of money in there. I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to get to retire. You can do that by all means. And it is much better than doing nothing. But if you get more efficient about creating better distribution strategies from the very beginning, right. and you look at a combination of investment vehicles and life insurance specifically funded to help you maximize or optimize your distribution, you can do totally different things. With right. less money, you can typically spend more. And the reason is because you're creating efficiencies. Whenever right. you are living in a world where your portfolio has to perform at, what did we say, 11.5% right. in order to get to an outcome, you are putting too much pressure on your money. 
If you can get to that same type of place with a six or 7% return, because you have better distribution strategy, you have a much higher likelihood that you are actually going to get there and mm -hmm. have the things that you are working towards. And if you decide to take more risk and you get that 11 and a half percent return, if you've set yourself up for optimum income distribution by creating that balance, it just means you have more to spend. Right. Right. But there's less pressure getting there. And I think this is where it is so important to find an advisor who is not oversimplifying what you're doing, but who can give you a, a system, a dynamic system that can alter, that can change, that does more than one thing. If you're just sitting your money somewhere, hoping it's going to grow over time, to me, that's, I mean, what do we call that, Eric? The Rip Van Winkle approach? <laughs> I put the money here, I take a nap for 30 years, I wake up and I'm a millionaire. That's not real. Right. Well, Is and nobody possible? writes. Yes. But what if you could do so much more? Well, and I don't take life as I would like it to be. That's the other end of it. I take life as it is. I know that people don't typically save 22%. That's not a thing. I don't, I know that most people don't have the steely eyed ice in their veins ability to handle a 30% drop in the market and go, yep, we're going to keep pouring cash in. Like we would tell them that that's what they should do, but people are humans. That's not what we have, people do. We have FOMO and follow, fear of missing out and fear of losing out. And we make rational, irrational decisions, right? And so I think part of that plan is A, the mindset of every time you hear all you need to do is X, that is a hot button issue that you should look somewhere else, right? But the other half is, I've got a system that allows you to flex and pull and adjust without destroying everything that's going on. Because maybe somebody got sick and you don't need to save that 50 grand that year. You need to redirect that money to medical bills. You, right. you need to be able to make that decision and go, look, my, my hierarchy of values, keeping my family and spouse and myself alive is way more important than my future from a financial standpoint. I need to be able to adjust and pull, not go, all right, we've got two kids. Well, at least we got one left. Like if this doesn't work out well, like nobody wants to have that. You need to be thinking about what's important, not what to do with your money, right? Right. So I'm going to give several examples of that, right? And and real examples from things our clients have faced. What about um, going through IVF, in vitro fertilization yep. process, multiple times, spending over $100,000 just so that you can end up having kids because that's part of your dream life, right? Right. That that is a what if those years you're not contributing forty thousand dollars, right? You need to be able to do that and not think, hey, I'm going to be destitute on the back end, right? This type of planning to me creates absolute scarcity mentality, and it locks people into making the choices that they feel they should make as opposed to looking for solutions for things they want to do. Other right. things I've seen people do as we've talked to them is stay in a job they hate, even though they're absolutely miserable because an advisor is telling them they have to save a certain amount of money. Right. What is the point of saving that money if you're miserable in the life that you're living? Right. right. Find a better way, a more efficient way to get to the same place. Introduce some creativity. Anytime we live in a world of scarcity, we make bad choices. Yep. When we start getting creative and looking for ways that we can actually build and grow and contribute and serve at those times opportunities show up and i think this is just another example of that and even though it's a well-meaning post all you have to do is this one thing and you're going to have eight million dollars i mean to me if anyone said all you have to do is this one thing and you're going to have this i'm like i don't that's that's a little oversimplified i've never had that happen in my hard. life right? right yeah it doesn't it doesn't have to be complex by any stretch of the imagination 
but it has to account for more than just a linear calculation because my life has never been linear. Right. I don't know about yours. No, I don't, I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So there are better solutions out there than that. If you guys come across something on social media and you're thinking, oh, what yeah. the heck, is this real or not real? DM us, send it yeah, to us, send it over. ask us the questions. If you're looking for me, you can find me at The Wealth Woman on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find me on LinkedIn. Eric, where can they find you? Yeah, and you can find me in all those same social media places at Economics with Eric. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. 